0: We're in Psalm 8 this morning as we continue our series in the Psalms. The Psalms were given for comfort and strength. And so much of that is our perspective. So many of these Psalms are like how high mountains you can climb up on and get your bearings straight. Again, remembering who God is in the midst of struggle, in the midst of trial, remembering that I have a God that cares and that a God that is able to deliver and to lead and to provide and to protect. And this is a psalm of just pure worship, probably in your Bible has a title of something like God's glory and man's dignity, who God created man to be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the blessing of your word and the Holy Spirit so that we can understand your word and he makes application to our lives and then gives grace that we might be found obedient. Lord, I pray that I might be spirit-filled, that your flock might be fed and challenged. And Lord, if there are any here that don't know you as their own personal Savior, they have no shepherd, Lord, that you draw them to yourself, that the message would be applied to their life today. In Jesus' name, amen. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth last week, my friend Gary Garls, he's always sending me books or messages and it's just kind of his gift for me. Uh, kind of like Pastor Howe, you want anything on a subject, you ask Lynn, he'll have a pile for you and it's all very good stuff. So Gary sent me a book this week by a woman named Dr. Bene Brown and she studies shame. She's not a believer, but her research is very good. Man doesn't have a problem seeing his problems. Just without God, they don't have the right answers. But she said that we live in a culture of deep scarcity in that things are never good enough, rich enough, big enough, powerful enough, extraordinary enough, safe enough, not reverent, not relevant enough, not certain enough, not safe enough, It's never enough. And that's true apart from God. She goes on to say, Belonging is an innate human desire to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. We present our imperfect selves to the world. And that's how you're going to become a part, that you've got to do this. The answer that she comes to is always what you have to do. Then she says, We don't talk about love because we can't define it. We can't measure love. And she didn't even like this part. This just came out of her research that we can't define love. She says, love is when we allow our most vulnerable and powerful selves to be deeply seen and known. And when we honor the spiritual connection that grows from that offering with trust and respect, kindness and affection. It's not something we give or get. It's something we nurture and grow. So it all is about man. She has no problem pointing out the problems, but her answers are way off. She says, Our first order of business is the development of self-love, not just a capacity to love other people, but a dense, a, a deep sense of being loved, worthy of love, and, belonging. and the biggest problem that people have in their work is wondering if their contributions are meaningful. Now, I just bring those out because it was amazing as I was reading this information that all the answers in the Word of God, and especially right here in Psalm 8, it starts in the first line, O Lord, our Lord. Do you have a shepherd today? When you look up at the skies or even see that tornado that came through, I love big storms. I love to hear big time thunder when it just echoes off the mountain. I think it was Tony Evans that said when he was growing up and there'd be a big storm, his grandma would say, turn off everything, God is talking. I was up Elk Mountain with John Bragg at his cabin and he was just doing a little bit of, I don't know if it was closing up for the, for before the winter came or we were opening. I can't remember what we were doing, but we were fixing some things and he was checking on things and Hudson was with us. He was just a little guy, just learning how to talk and there's a big thunder started booming off those peaks. I said, Hudson, God's talking. He looks at me, holds his arms up because his dad was someplace else and he says, hold you, hold you. God is talking. A tornado came the other day, and we got to watch it, and that's just a little just a little glimpse of the power of our God. And I'm taken in by it, and I'm not afraid. I know they can do damage. They can do tremendous damage, but my God's in charge. He's the one that holds everything in his hand. And when you know that, when you belong to God, and God belongs to you, you can say, Oh, Lord, my Lord, what a tremendous place of security that is because there's nothing beyond his care, nothing beyond his power or provision. But the question is today, can you say, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And what you find even as we look at this One passage, and there are so many, the the, the Bible is filled with the fullness of God is that he's enough. He is enough. He's rich enough. He's powerful enough. He's secure enough. He is everything we need for life and for godliness. And as he leads us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake, we have no wants. Really, we don't. Now, as you're growing in Christ, that might be part of the process when you just are finding out that you really have no wants. Because as you're coming out of the world, you still, and we can drift and we can go back there and say, oh, but I'd like this also. My life will be better. And when you add something else to God, and that's called idolatry. When God and anything else is enough, that's idolatry because he is enough. And I think the psalmist is just overwhelmed with the thought, oh God, my God, oh Jehovah, my Jehovah, how majestic is your name in all the earth. There's nothing compared to the name of God. He's not one among many. He is the majestic God. He's majestic God. He's going to go in and just talk a little bit about creation. But first, he says that it's his name. It's named because of what his name represents. When we talk about a holy God and we talk about holiness, that's not just pure from sin. That means Separate. He's separate and he's unlike anything else. He's totally apart from anything else that you can even think or imagine. He's above all. So much so that Paul could say and promise in Ephesians 3, 13, his, his prayer for all of God's people, they would be rooted and grounded in love so that they might find out that he is able to do far abundantly beyond Did you get that far abundantly beyond all that you could ever ask or think you can't even ask what god's going to deliver i was in a bible study some years ago we were studying a book with by charles stanley about heaven and somebody came up with the idea and i know this is not uncommon robin williams was in a field in a film about heaven that was just depressing and um, the reason that he said that heaven is just the best thing you can imagine. So you just imagine that that's going to be heaven for you. And I said, stop right there. That is absolutely false. Well, what do you mean? Because we're fallen. Our thoughts are not his thoughts. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His thoughts are above our thoughts. And the Bible says we cannot imagine How do you think a fallen man could imagine what heaven is? Now he's given us little glimpses, hasn't he, in Ezekiel chapter one? The throne room and those amazing creatures that are there giving worship and doing God's bidding, and they flash and they're so fast, they're like lightning, and the power and the glory of God. And we see the throne room of God in Revelation chapter one. We see the glorified Christ. In chapter five, we see that great worship stadium that we're going to be a part of? And I know when we get there, we're going to say, oh, good description. But right now, we go, I don't know. What are the wheels and the wheels and the eyes? I don't know. And somebody tries to do, you can look online, there'll be little illustrations of that, usually in cartoons, and no, that's not it. For all eternity, God is going to be blowing our mind. That's why John Erickson taught a says that when those angels that are saying holy, holy, holy throughout all eternity, the reason they can do that is because they're looking at God and going, whoa, he is far above. He is majesty. He is holy, holy, holy. And look back and they see more. And our worship is going to increase. Man was created to worship. That's evident as our Culture decomposes. Do you know what have become our new cathedrals? Sports arenas. Why? Because we want to worship, and what we want to worship is man. Want to worship? And people complain about giving to church, but they have no problem wearing the apparel, paying $50 for a jersey to wear it, paint their house the color of their team, and make sure they got season tickets. And they're, oh, I got season tickets. I've, got, I've had them for this long. We've been faithful in supporting our worship, right? And so as our culture devolves, man is not worshiping less. He's just worshiping twisted. God created us for his worship. When I consider, he said, how majestic is your name in all the earth? You have displayed your splendor above the heavens, we could have a whole series on the splendor of God in the skies, couldn't we? A number of times I've seen the northern lights. When it gets really that super cold week that sometimes we get in January or February, I remember going out with college young people after they'd been in my house till like one o'clock in the morning and they walked outside and the sky was just blood red and changing colors, just flashing from the northern lights. Or the beautiful rainbows you can see this time of year, God's promise, let alone the stars. And you go out and you look and you feel so small. Then he says, from one height to the lowest, he says, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength so that because of the adversary, so that the enemy and the avengeful might be silenced. What did he mean by that? Charles Spurgeon said, Not only in the heavens above is the Lord seen. But the earth beneath is telling forth His majesty. In the sky, the massive orbs rolling in their stupendous grandeur are witnesses of His power and great things, while here below, the lisping utterances of babes are the manifestations of His strength in little ones. How often will children tell us of a God whom we have forgotten? How does their simple prattle refute those learned fools who deny the being of God? Many have been made to hold their tongues, while babes have borne witness to the glory of the God in heaven. There is nothing like the praise of children. Children got who Jesus was. They were the ones that were praising him and saying, Hosanna, as he came to offer himself to be the king of Israel. And the learned, rebellious leaders said, do you need to tell them to be quiet? And Jesus said, if they're silent, the rocks would cry out. The disciples thought Jesus was too busy and too big for children, and they stopped the children from coming. He said, no, no, you let the children come because of such are the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because they're rich in faith. They just believe. Do you know you have to teach a child to be an atheist? I was thinking of the story of Helen Keller. Helen Keller was a little girl born into a doctor's. A lot of people don't know who that was. When i grew up, everybody knew who Helen Keller was. She was still alive. And uh, she was a young lady that was born into a doctor's family. And uh, she got a fever. I don't know if it was measles or something. And she lost her hearing and her sight. They didn't want to put her in a home because they loved her. And so they just let her grow up like a little wild animal. And so they thought, at some point, we need to get a teacher. And they brought a godly woman named Ann Sullivan into their home. And Anne said, "You're going to have to just give me time with her, and you stay out of the way." They didn't want to discipline her, and she knew she needed discipline. So she began to just do simple things: run water over Anne's hands and put her hand on her lips so she could hear the wor- feel the words being formed. And she taught her to read Braille and to speak. And one day she taught her about Jesus. And Helen Keller said. Oh, I wondered what his name was. Isn't that precious? And how many big, strong, rebellious men are brought to faith because of the simple love of their grandchildren. Out of the mouth of babes, he has established strength. George Whitfield says in a footnote in one of his letters, when he first began to preach and was experiencing persecution while he would preach out in the open, and they said his voice was, God gave him this voice that would travel for like two miles. He could just preach God, but people didn't like it. He brought revival to America and to England, but he was first beginning to preach. He says, I cannot help adding that several little boys and girls who were fond of sitting around me on the pulpit while I preached and handed to me people's notes, though they were often pelted with eggs and dirt thrown at me. They never once gave way, but on the contrary, every time I was struck, turned up their weeping little eyes and seemed to wish they could receive the blows for me. Who delights in the songs of angels is pleased to honor himself in the eyes of his enemies by the praises little children how precious it is when we have a christmas uh program or a program in the spring we ever have a children's program and we get to hear little ones recite god's word and sing jesus loves me it's precious to god too and so we have the the amazing powerful works of god and the sun and the moon and the stars We see the glimpse of it like we saw that tornado. But he loves his children. The next question is, what is man? He said, when I consider their heavens, the work of your fingers, isn't it just God's finger work? He breathed out the stars. His finger, when I consider, what, what is the natural reaction of even unregenerate man when he considers the vastness of creation? It is humility. We are small. We are very, very small. Now, the unregenerate man says, well, I guess we're so small, we're going to have to take care of ourselves. And the, the amazing silliness of man that thinks he can somehow control the weather and the climate. And if you listen to these people, you know, they'd have everybody but them stop driving cars and stop using energy, but them, they'll keep theirs. But if we just do that, you know, then, then we could maybe turn this climate change around. Listen, I want to tell you something about climate change. Number one, this is a disposable planet. Do you know that one day it belongs to God? God, it's his planet, not ours. He's called us to be caretakers. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But Peter said one day it's going to pass away with a great noise and a fervent heat. He's just going to take his hands off and it's going to fizzle. In the meantime, he said summer and fall and winter and spring will not cease until he takes his hands off. What should we take from that? First Colossians chapter 3 says, you ought to understand that God is the one that holds all things together. And the more you understand that, the more he will come to have preeminence in your mind and everything, because God is majestic in all that he does. He is perfect, and you can trust him. But he says, when I consider the heavens the work of your fingers, my first response is, who are we? What is man? Well, Paul tells us who man is in Romans chapter three verses 10 through eighteen. He said, "There is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. there's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. together they have become useless. There is none who does good, there is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. with their tongues they keep deceiving. the poison of asp is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The natural man left to himself is a sinful, rebellious child of disobedience with no hope of anything apart from God but what it says here in Psalm 8 is he didn't leave us there. Adam chose sin on purpose. God could have chosen to start over, but he didn't. And every little child knows God so loved the world. So it's wrong when B'nai Brown says there's no definition of love because in 1 John three sixteen it says, by this we know love that Jesus laid his life down for us and we ought to lay our lives down for the brethren. What is man that you think of him? I don't know about you, but I'm amazed that God wants to hear our prayers in our home growing up, my dad was a pastor so we had Christian records, you know, before all this new things we have. Don't need records, don't need cassettes, I know. I'm kind of there. But we had a song that was that would play on our record player and the words were he loves to have us come to him in prayer. He listens as we share each little care. Isn't that amazing? that the God of the universe cares to hear from you, from me. That's how big he is. Now, it would be one thing to say, like Benjamin Franklin believed that he was the creator and he wound up this clock and let it go. It's just going to, you're on your own. But no, no, he's not only the transcendent God, he's the God that came down and tabernacled with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Philippians 2 says he was creator God. He spoke the worlds into existence. And then he humbled himself, take upon him flesh. So today he is forever God and he's a forever man, both 100% God, 100% man. But when we get to heaven, having been made perfect, he will still bear the scars of the crucifixion. Because that is the glories of his victory at the cross, where he won the right to redeem the world back to himself and those that would come to him by faith. So that when we get to heaven, it says in Revelation chapter 5, some from every tribe, nation, language, and people group will be there in heaven. He's the God of the world, He's creator God. What is man? In the old King James, that the son of man that he visited us. Now, that just means that God comes and communicates, but he also sent his only son to be the Savior. The only thing that could help, the only answer, was Jesus coming to die on a cross. What is man? The humanist says that man is the measure of all things, and so man has to figure it out. And obviously, uh, Ms. Brown feels that way. And so she's working on the answers. The problem is when you live, leave God out of the equation, you'll never come to the answer. You'll never come to the end. And man is left. As the prophet said in the Old Testament, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly up. The heart of man is deceitfully wicked. And the way of peace he cannot know. The wicked are like the troubled sea, always casting up mire and dirt. Oh, look, there's a good idea. Oh, there's another idea. But man is left in his state. What is man that you think about him? God is in his thoughts. We have that song that we sang. is so precious. He knows my name. Jesus said to his disciples, you know, you, you worry and toil And look at the birds of the air. They don't spin. They don't don't reap and gather into barns. The flowers don't spin. And yet Solomon, all of his glory, was not dressed like the flowers. You think God cares more about sparrows? He knows the hairs on your head. He cares for you. He knows your name. And as a child, his child, one day he's going to give you a new name that nobody knew before but him. And you know that your life is so precious to him that he would have died for you if you're the only one that ever would have responded to him? That means that we are personally accountable to this God who gave his life that we might have life. What is man that you think of him, the son of man, that you care for him. Yet, he has made us a little lower than God. Do you know that one day, the saints are going to judge the angels? Oh yes, man fell. Even though we live in a fallen creation, we still see the beauty and the glory of God's creation. But God created man to rule. Warren Wearsby wrote a book many years ago about the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And the name of the book is Live Like a King. And the idea is that God created Adam to rule in his creation. He named all the animals. He was to rule and keep the garden. We're not to be abusers of God's creation. We're to be caretakers of it. That's why the Bible says God hates the plowing of the wicked. You say, wait, the Bible says that? I thought he only hated their sin. No, no, he hates the plowing of the wicked. The Bible says God is angry with the wicked every day. Why? Because they use his creation and they don't worship him. God created them to worship, and yet they are the children of disobedience. But in Christ, we can rule once again. See, the world has to be ruled by its flesh because they don't have spiritual life. They're dead. They're ruled by their sin nature. But as a believer, you've been set free to follow Christ. You've been given grace that you might be obedient to his word and live a life by faith that's pleasing to him. He set you free from sin. That you might rule. Even though man's fallen... God created man to rule. One day we'll judge angels. He's put put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and the beasts of the field, the fish in the sea, the birds of the air. Man is to rule over that. We're to be caretaker. And talking to forest people, we understand that the reason our forest died is because we weren't taking care of it. People apart from God get ideas that are not biblical. They said, well, the best way to take care of their forest is just let it be and let nobody but a few select people use it. What do we find out in Oregon and Washington where they harvest the forest then plant it again? Healthy forest. You know what the uh, pine beetle attacks? Old trees. I've talked to hunters that say, you go to part of the forest now up here and it's just dead. There's no animals or anything. That's what happened when man doesn't take care. Another extreme is when man uses things up and he pollutes because he has no fear of God. He just uses it and leaves it the way it is. As long as I've got money in my day. But God has made a way for farmers and ranchers and people. And that's why he told the Old Testament people, well, you you farm for six years, then let, let the land rest for a year. Give it a break. So it'll continue to produce for you. But ultimately, health in a nation doesn't come from its farming practices or its economic practices. It comes from a nation that honors God. But our nation is sick. Our nation is dying. Do you wonder why that there's an upside down moral now? That that which is evil according to scripture is now good? And if you are promoting the Scripture, then you become evil? I was listening to Al Mohler this week, and he said that California has passed a law now that makes any literature, including your Bible, illegal to sell if it has negative feelings. So he said, most of my books are illegal. You see, we live in a nation that's been blessed because our forefathers understood God, they knew there was right and wrong, and our nation was founded upon the Word of God. And our first president, George Washington, as at his inaugural, called for prayer. And they all went from the place, the government building in New York, down to this little church that's still there today, a little, a little Episcopal church, and they dedicated the nation to God. And George Washington invoked the blessings of God upon this nation, but he also invoked the curse that said if this nation turns its back on God, that God would bring his discipline to this nation. If you look at Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and following, that's where we are. We worship the creation more than the creator who's blessed forever. And because of that, God turns us over to the Greek word moros, moronic thinking. The only hope for this nation is not better agricultural process or better economic, but righteousness, righteousness. It's what we need to be praying for, because God intended man to rule, not to be ruled by his passions and sin nature, but to rule in the creation that God gave him. Over everything, I used to have an old friend that would go hunting with us, and Tom would say, he, he took, he's always taking films of himself hunting, I remember one, he He's standing in front of his truck, and he was a littler guy, so his truck was real tall compared to him. And he holds up his 30-out six and he says, God intended man to have dominion over the animals. This is dominion. His trigger finger, okay. God meant us to take care and to harvest and to be a part of what he's doing, not just stop not just ignore it, but to rule. He ends by, by just being overwhelmed with worship. Oh, Lord, my Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You know, one of the things that B'nai Brown said The biggest trigger of shame in the workplace are my contributions meaningful. Am I investing my life? You see, see the thing about knowing God is he gives people purpose. It's the purpose he intended you have to be a worshiper. And the promise there's going to be an accountability. One day we're going to stand before the Lord, even as children, give an account for what we did with the life. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he talks about the resurrection and the rapture. And he concludes the whole thing in verse 58. And he says, therefore, my beloved, do you see what's happening here? My beloved brethren, always be abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know, your labor is not in vain in him. There's an old saying, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. We, found the, we find the answers to man's problems in the scripture, but only when you have life in Christ. Do you have that life? Is your shepherd today? He calls to you. Matthew chapter eleven twenty eight. 28, he says, Come to me all your labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. You'll find rest for your souls. There's only rest and peace in Christ. Jesus said, I came that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. But you must partake of that. You must decide to submit your life to his life. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this amazing psalm that just reminds us of your majesty, of your power. We see it around us every day, but we take it for granted. And then, Your Lord, your great humbling as you came to earth to save us your enemies. Oh Lord, now as your children that we might be stirred up to live lives that honor you and reflect your grace to those around us that are still lost. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing together.